Hello, and welcome to episode four of Here's the Thing, Eight Minute Movies, or Eight Minute Movies, Here's the Thing, depending on which way round we decide to publish them. We'll probably never decide. We never will. Hello, how are you doing this evening, Peter? Oh, you know, I'm doing all right. That's good to hear. I hear you recently ate a pizza. I did. What What was on it? Uh, pepperoni, you know, classic. That's a good choice. Well, that's enough small talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's time for the section of the podcast where we introduce the very concept of this lunacy. Uh, I did it last time, so the mantle has fallen to you. Oh, also, we're taking I, turns now. Well, I, I I just like hearing you talk. Your voice soothes me. It's mm, nice. Would explain why you fall asleep so often when I'm talking. <laughs> So the concept of this podcast that we're now in the fourth episode of is that we are watching The Thing, the 1982 movie The Thing, uh, eight minutes at a time and then discussing that eight minutes. Me as someone who has seen the film a few times but is not is not that knowledgeable about it uh, and has not seen it, has not watched it that closely very often. And Kieran, who has watched it an awful lot, possibly, I'm going to, I'm going to say every day of his life. Uh, that well, might be an exaggeration, I, but there, I'm sure there were some years <laughs> where I, I, I didn't see it, but like, yeah. Uh, and uh, as our expert on the film in the room, uh, he will explain some things about the film while I uh, react to the eight minutes that we just watched. Excellent. Succinct and to the point. They both mean the same thing. Note to self, buy a thesaurus. So um, here's the point in the podcast where we usually talk about something tangentially related to the thing, which I haven't thought of a snappy name for. I know you briefly mentioned it last time, but I thought perhaps we could talk a little bit more in depth about the board game. Ooh, yes. So uh, the board game, incidentally to all of this, is probably where we first discovered that it is really hard not to say the thing uh, when you are playing a board game about the thing and you're just talking about various events that are happening in the game and you want to clarify that you're not referring to the thing itself but some other thing that you're referring to in the game. Do you follow? Uh, I started to zone out a little during that, yeah. but I, I think I get the gist, yeah. That's just um, my soothing voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's where the idea for the game that we're playing very badly during this podcast, where if what the other person says the thing, we ding this little bell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it turns out that it's very hard to talk and concentrate on another person. We should have had... Is it too late to start the whole podcast over? We should have had an impartial third ding master. <laughs> Yes. Whose um, who's job it is is to just listen to the recording. <laughs> uh, who do we know who would be most likely to be called a ding master? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got a pretty big list. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, the board game, uh, The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31, was released in the distant past year of 2017 and is a hidden identity game where you play as one of 12 characters from The Thing as you lead a series of investigations through the facility using supplies and equipment to clear the building. The goal of the humans is to complete missions and escape the base. The goal of the things is to sabotage missions and sneak onto the escape helicopter. 
It's currently rated a 7.3 on BoardGameGeek.com. Oh, that's... It's quite high praise for that site, I, yeah. I, I seem to think. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, 7, seven is, is average for many things, but the people on BoardGameGeek are very angry, usually. Yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> overall, I personally enjoy it a lot. I like hidden identity games very much. Like, I really enjoy Secret Hitler. And making the game be about uh, one of my favourite film franchises sweetens the deal a lot for me. Yeah, um... It's kind of like a thing film randomizer. That's that's how it works. You know how you can get like a a Zelda randomizer where it would be like that video game, but with all of the pieces shuffled around so things don't happen in the same order or in the the same way, but it's technically still supposed to be completable. Uh, it's 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 like that, but in board game form for for the thing. So not the the same people won't be the thing, and uh, it, it'll all happen in a different order but basically the same thing is going to go down uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh, a bunch of people some of whom are infected and things going very wrong in uh, antarctic station yeah that's a great way of describing it actually um yeah i like it a lot it um it plays very well at the start Everyone gets a card which tells them if they're infected or not, and uh, human players can become infected at various points throughout the game. So the state of the known information that you have, which is a thing for hidden information games, is always constantly changing. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. Yeah, it's it's nice when there are points in the game where um, a new infection can incur because that really ups the ante. Because maybe someone else is a thing, and maybe they aren't. Oh yeah, because some it's not definite that someone will be infected, no. right? No, it, no, it's, no. There's a chance that no new people were. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, it recreates that kind of tension quite nicely. Peter, how many the thing board games do you think there are? There are at least three that I've heard you speak of. Ah, uh, well, you're wrong. It's four. <laughs> uh, yeah, I knew there must be more. <laughs> Coming out about the same time, there was Who Goes There, a board game based on the original short story, which I have but haven't actually got around to playing because I just about managed to get nine people together to play the other The Thing board game. If I then whipped out a second The Thing board game and said, let's play this now, I think everyone would have had me shot. And uh, let's not forget it's currently illegal to get nine people together. Well... <laughs> No, no, you, 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 you can't mention this. It dates the podcast. Um, yeah, there's Who Goes There. Uh, there was a print and play board game in 2010. There's The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. And there's literally a new The Thing board game on Kickstarter right now, scheduled for release in 2021. Do you think that people are just like, they play one of the Thing board games and then think, well, I liked it, but I, I think I could do a better one of these. And... And they then just decide to make their own, and then someone plays that one, and the same thing happens again. I'd I'd like to think that that iterative process is going on, and it's not that um, someone cynically realizes that if you write the thing on the front of a box, uh, it's a license to print money um, <laughs> from chumps like me who I already have backed it on Kickstarter. Well, I, I, look, I I do really like those sort of hidden information games. It's one of my favorite. Uh, games to play. See, I didn't say the word. Um, <laughs> I was hovering over it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I like all sorts of board games in, in that genre. And I guess this is just kind of a natural 
uh, way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Um, but also, I do like the idea that people are just continuously playing and improving upon prior thing board games because that yeah. means at some point there'll be a perfect one. Just competitive <laughs> thing board game design. <laughs> I think it's time to begin the show. All right. So, how do we start this? I can't remember. Um, it's, it's not even been a week, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, first of all, I will recap you on who you think is infected. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, it's still just Norris. Um, mm-hmm. You think everyone else is not infected, but you don't have any information on Bennings, Clark, Fuchs, Windows, and Knowles. Uh Yeah, I think some of that will change mm. after this one. I, I've had a few thoughts, which we'll get to. And you had your, what happens next? And you said, um, they do the autopsy, the dog is around, and someone tells Clark to put the dog with the others, and the dog goes to the kennels. Mm-hmm. How, are you, how are you feeling about that prediction now that you've seen the next eight minutes? I'm feeling very good. I, would feel, I feel like it's maybe not what happened immediately next, but it is a good description of what happens in this segment of the film. Mm-mm. All right, and let's move on to minutes 24 to 32 of The Thing. As has become tradition, I will read out a brief synopsis of like 20 seconds of action. And if you have anything you want to say, chip in. Otherwise, I will carry on to the next one. Mm-hmm. All right, let us begin. The camera pans up to show us the gruesome twin face of the body. So uh, last time, I think I said that the looks at this weird body uh, are the first kind of clues you get about what's going on. But actually, it's only really this shot here which gives you any sort of significant clue about it. And it's just right at the end, and it just just missed the last segment. Mm. I, uh, I I think this is an absolutely iconic shot from this film. Like the monster is um, unique to the thing. I've never seen anything like mm-hmm. it in anything else. If you see this thing, go on, do it. Oh right, I was gonna <laughs> let you. I was gonna let that one slide. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know in my heart of hearts, I I was just, I wasn't using it in the context that we previously established or allowed. <laughs> If you see that monster, a still from this monster, you immediately associate it with the thing. Mm. Now, and a question for you, Peter. Do you recognize the face at all? Uh, does it, oh, does wow. it look familiar to you? I'll give you a clue. It's not someone you'd associate with the thing. Uh, it's not a great clue, I admit, because like contrary to what my movie collection would imply, there are other films besides the thing. I'm going to say they definitely didn't get the same actor back for the prequel. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, no, this must be something else. No, I wasn't even in recognize a face mode, so I've got no idea. Go on. Uh, Those charming features are those of Robert Picardo, probably most famous to us for his role as the Doctor on Star Trek Voyager. Wow, okay. (laughs) Mm, we're going to have to roll back that tape later <laughs> so that I can have a look at that again. The head was originally based off a clay pressing of Picardo, which was done by Rob Bettine during the production of The Howling. Uh, okay. He needed it for the scenes where he transforms into a werewolf. Hmm. So he had it lying around and reused it as the base model for the head from The Thing. Mm. 
So actually, I suppose they could have got that actor in for the prequel, but didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the dog is standing in the doorway watching MacReady. More of those sinister dog shots, but now maybe, maybe just that there's a little bit of a light turning on for more observant watchers who aren't me because I wouldn't have made the connection yet. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I agree that uh, my notes here just say there is again, foreshadowing that something is up with the dog. Yeah. We cut to windows asleep in the radio room and Gary wakes him up <laughs> by causing like feedback or something. And <laughs> yeah, he, he turns the volume up on his headset. Yeah, um, and he's in his dressing gown, so he's clearly also just kind of he he has been trying to sleep, but he can't sleep, and he's anxious about I, getting in touch. Uh, my notes here to say I love how Gary tries to seem stern and in command, and he's in his baby blue flannelette bathrobe. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I I think he's actually off to bed. I, I think he's just mm. checking on Windows before sleep. Um, ah, right, okay. We cut to the autopsy of the Norwegian and the creature. So I guess we see here why Blair was asked to perform the autopsy of the creature. We were talking about that last time because Dr. Copper is simultaneously performing an autopsy on the Norwegian. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Uh, I guess you'd want the doctor to look at a human and the biologist to look at something that might be a human. <laughs> right. In the script, in a deleted scene, the Norwegian's name is Jans Bolen. Probably not pronouncing that surname right but he becomes Lars in the prequel because Jans is not a Norwegian name. Uh. <laughs> During the autopsy of the monster, that's a real liver that he's removing. From nice. The cavity. Uh, Wilford Brimley, who's Blair doing the autopsy there, um, was a cowboy. Like mm. he was a ranch hand. And so he's just totally used to handling animal guts and things. Right. His history is very interesting. Yeah. I've never really consider that when i'm watching this sort of film like when there's someone like rummaging through organs or like even when there's like surgery in a film when someone's like rummaging through or organs or something that that might be really gross to the actor <laughs> yeah he just they just went out and bought a liver yeah. <laughs> did not bother him at all uh later in the evening we see palmer and child relaxing so they're relaxing with a game show the quiz show they're watching is Let's Make a Deal, hosted by Monty Hall, the origin of the famous Monty Hall problem. Yes, a problem that I spent some effort trying to uh, understand and feel like I do now. So that's good. I, I reread the Wikipedia article about the Monty Hall problem before this. And whereas previously I thought I understood it, now I think I don't. So, uh. <laughs> I, uh, it, it all hinges on the fact that the host knows what's behind the doors. That's mm. the important thing. Um, I mean, do we get into this? Because we're basically going to double the length of this podcast <laughs> if we do. I think you can just look at if you're interested. Look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. I, I, I guess to to just summarize what the problem is, it's a, a game show where there are three doors, and behind two of the doors there's a goat, and behind one of the doors there's like a star prize, like a car or something. Um, and um, you pick a door and. Then Monty Hall, the host, 
says, "Are you sure you want to stick with that door, or do you want to switch?" And here, I'll I'll sweeten the deal for you and uh, reveal a door that is not the correct door, one that you didn't pick that is not the correct door. Uh, so now you either stick with your choice or move to the still un unrevealed door. Uh, and and the question is, is it better to switch or stick or doesn't it make a difference and the surprising answer is that you should always switch and there is a logical reason why that we probably shouldn't get into thank you peter for that pithy summation of the monty hall problem i was going to use the word succinct again but then i realized i've used it thrice and that would make it seem like i've got a word a day calendar or something i think it's pronounced pissy <laughs> where were we uh yes they are indeed watching let's make a deal they're also smoking pot which you think would be quite hard to come by in antarctica mm. uh it comes up in the book um that there's a little greenhouse where they grow it um makes sense the greenhouse is featured in some deleted scenes from the movie um mm. but we'll get to those when they come up i guess gary knows about it and doesn't really care as long as they do their jobs it's not hurting anyone Oh, um, my final note for this section is oh, top loading VCR. What a classic! They don't make them like that anymore. Yeah, I did know. I did notice that. I didn't actually write a note about it, but yeah, uh, VCRs they weren't very good, and that's all I have to say about them. Oh, come on! What as a child, they were the best thing in the world. <laughs> yes, technology no, has moved on. They did the job, but it's very much moved on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. I'd, I'd rather have broadband internet streaming than a VCR. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I just remember the moment that you first watched a DVD and you were like, wow, I can actually see stuff. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. Um, fun, fun aside that I might cut out. Um, my first VCR was a top-loading VCR that was old when I got it. I got it from a charity stop, and it was so heavy that it took three people to carry it. I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, I don't know what it was made of, fucking depleted uranium or something. <laughs> I think I still have it just because I can't drag it out to the curb. It's too heavy. <laughs> the rest of the men are relaxing in the lounge. Norris, Gary, and Bennings are playing poker. Okay, so finally my media studies degree is going to pay off for this podcast. Um, <laughs> I think that both the uh, Let's Make a Deal and the game of poker are just like met little background metaphors um, that are playing out for things that we're about to see. Oh, is is the thing behind door number one, two, or three? Uh, uh, what am I holding in my hand? Uh, how's my poker face? Um, <laughs> all of that kind of business. It's it's all about like hidden information. Peter, I know writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, wow. I Neither of those things has ever occurred to me, but then again, I've proven time and again that I, the way my brain works is to not absorb any sort of subtext from media whatsoever, unless it's like right in your fucking face. Trust me, you are never going to hear an analysis remotely as deep as that again in this podcast, and I don't even think that was particularly deep. Do you really have a media studies degree? <laughs> uh, did I say degree? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> 
Um, it, was it a GCSE? It was a GCSE, yeah. Um, I, I, I need to re-say that then. No, no, it's fine. We'll leave it in. I like this bit. I was going to say, I've known you for like 20 years and I didn't know that was your degree subject. No, I do not have a media studies degree, unless you count music, which is the study of a, a single medium. medium. <laughs> I, do, you know, do you know what? I think it's okay to... I'm, from now on, I'm going to say I've got a media studies degree. I've got two degrees. No one is ever going to check. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I'm literally going to put that on my CV now. <laughs> Sorry, where were we? The dog walks under the table, making Bennings jump. He tells Clark to put the dog away. See, now I've got me thinking. Um, now I've got me thinking. I, I start thinking, okay, so would Bennings have behaved as genuinely surprised as the thing, or is this a tactic to get the thing in with the other dogs? I don't know. You think there might be some issue with Bennings? Perhaps he's been assimilated well, at this point. I do remember that it's quite early as far as Bennings is concerned. Poor Bennings. He, yeah, he doesn't make it very far through the movie. Yes, there's going to be some flamethrower action with Bennings <laughs> quite soon, I feel. Um, and so I think it's very plausible that he's already in, infected at this point. Plus, he's, uh, the, he's the only character we know of at this point who actually just has a hole in them, like a, a wound. Yeah, so, so something that I'm just not clear about... Um, at all with the thing is whether um, the imitation is so perfect that they can just behave like the other person in every respect. They can just kind of act perfectly as that person if they want to. Um, I know that they must know everything that the other person knows because that just seems to be the case in in the film. Um, but I, what I don't understand is whether they can completely would completely infallibly behave like that person. There's, there's no canon answer. And, um, some of the actors on the set were getting sick of discussing it because between takes, everyone would get into talking about the motivations of the thing and Mm. what knowledge it would have. Mm. And after a certain, after a certain point, they were just like, yeah, all right, we've covered this ground. Can we just film the film, the film now, please? From what we could observe in the film, uh, the things perfectly copy the hosts. Like there's an instance later on where someone is sick, someone has an illness, and they copy the illness, yeah. even though that's to their detriment. So, as I understand it, and I think I'm following what most people agree with, is that um, if you are if you've been taken over by the thing, the original host consciousness is gone. Like you have died. Yeah. Um, it's just a creature copying you which has full access to your memories and the layout of your body so it mm-hmm. copies all of you you know diseases and flaws included yes. um and it will go around acting like you by basically pulling your strings via your memories or whatever yes. until it's time to assimilate somebody else okay and i think the reason that it's relevant here is that on the one hand i think that um the reaction to the dog running under the table feels very genuine from Bennings. On the other hand, just telling Clark to go and uh, put the dogs in, uh, uh, the, do- the dog in with the other dogs would be an excellent 
next move for for the thing. Um, yeah, no, you, you're not wrong. I guess we don't really know um, either way. Um, there's actually some contention with the fans here about what goes on under the table. Um, some people think the dog bites him, which is what makes him jump. But um, I think it's inconclusive, but I sort of lean towards it just more brushing against his recently shot leg that makes him jump so much. Yeah, I don't think that... Yeah, why would he bite him? I don't, I don't quite get yeah, that. It's, well, I mean, I guess you just don't... He, yeah. he's, I guess he is like a little overreacting, but I suppose if, you know, if it did brush against uh, his slightly injured leg, he might, you know? And like you're just not expecting a dog to be there and you haven't, you haven't been thinking about it. No, exactly. Yeah. Clark takes the dog to the kennel. It settles in with the others. Uh, Richard Mazur here playing Clark, who uh, turned down a role in E.T. to uh, do a more firm role in this film. Mm. So um, who knows how that worked out for him, really? As you remember, this wasn't well received at the time. Yeah. Uh, This scene was very difficult to shoot because dogs are dogs. And every time they brought in another dog, they all wanted to get up and play with the other dog. (laughs) It took a long time to convince them all to lie down. As uh, Clark leaves um, and he turns the light off, we're cutting back and forth between a shot of the real dog sitting down on the ground and a rubber prop dog. Ah, Fun fact okay. for people at home, see see if you can tell which is the real dog and which is the fake dog. Is the fake dog the one that skin rips open? <laughs> it... uh, if it wasn't, the American Humane Society uh, have got a lot of explaining to do. Yeah. As Clark leaves, the dog starts to hiss. The other dogs bark furiously at it. So I did. I, I, I've watched this scene a couple of times. This one's one of the more memorable scenes in the film, I guess. Um, so, um, and each time I've wondered what the exact sequence of events is here. Uh, whether the dogs seem to notice something is wrong before uh, before the dog goes strange. Whether the dogs can are just better at figuring out the thing than uh than people are yeah i think they might be able to smell them out mm. uh and also just it could explain why um the thing was hesitant at first to go in because you'd think if it was part of the thing's plan just to infect the other dogs then he'd just kind of happily bound in to the kennel and uh then that would be fine. Uh, no one would question that, and uh, it, it would be great. But uh, uh, he seems very hesitant at first to actually engage with the other dogs. Or is he? Or is he just perfectly imitating the shyness of a dog? We'll never know. I mean, possibly, yeah. The dog's skin rips open, revealing a bloody skull, which falls away. Tendrils and spider-like legs emerge from the dog. The other dogs try to get away. And yes, then there's squirty juice is what I wrote. (laughs) Um, Yeah, all the dog scenes in the movie were closely observed by the Humane Society. And John Carpenter is a big animal rights guy. So he was definitely on the side of not hurting any of these dogs. Um, That dog that's receiving the squirty juice, as you put it, um, is being shot with carbapol, which we discussed last time as being the sort of binding ingredient from Twinkies. So it's 
edible white goo, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harmless, but not exactly pleasant. The dog was only shot for about a second, uh, and then it's sort of mixed up and applied again as a close-up of the same footage. Uh, yeah. So they only had to shoot the dog once with the goo, but they could get a slightly longer shot. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you notice the bit where the dog tries to bite its way through the fence? I did. It had uh, quite a good go at it, really. Uh, the fence there is made of spun sugar, so it's edible. <laughs> ah, delicious. <laughs> delicious chain-link fence. Clark returns, investigating the noise. He opens the door to the darkened kennel, and a jumping dog hits him in the chest. Ah, Peter, the first jump scare of the movie. Yeah. Uh, And it's also the thing that made me... (laughs) Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) It's also what made me realize that I don't think Clark is currently a thing. Uh, because of how he reacts with confusion and genuine fear at this bit? Uh, no, just the fact that he comes back to investigate at all. Ah, um, yeah, that's a lot subtler than I was thinking. Um, just because if it's your plan as the thing to get the dogs infected without anyone realizing, which seems like the most sensible plan, yeah, wouldn't you just, just leave them to it rather than come back to see what's going on? Hmm. Uh it's interesting this keeps coming up and there's a thing i'm not sure if it's just in the (laughs) there's some matter which comes up and i'm not sure if it's just in the book but the things are described as selfish so if there's one collection of biomass it doesn't care about the other collections of biomass even though they are still the same creature Hmm. that's sort of in the the original script, it gets cut down in the film. It's one of MacReady's original justifications for the blood test scene. Right. It's, you know, they all try and survive. They only care about their own existence. And there is there is a, a large-scale example of that later on. Uh, I'm not sure whether we should mention it now or whether we should wait until we get to that bit of the film. Right. But, yeah, there is another bit where, where that comes up, and I'll, I'll point it out when we do. So so I guess that's relevant to some of my thoughts about this earlier as well, because now it makes me think that it's less likely that Bennings, as a plan, tries to get the the dogs in with the uh, uh the, the dog in with the other dogs, because mm. why would Bennings care in that scenario? Well it's it's more like um they they can work together to follow a concerted plan like right, you know okay. keeping the humans distracted while they build a ufo spoilers right. um but um if if the opportunity like arises to throw one of them under the bus um mm. they're not gonna start a huge fight over it right fair enough uh, maybe we should just talk about that bit because it, it has come up and it may come up again um so um there's a part later in the film where the head of norris is escaping through a doorway like on its own it's just leaving and uh palmer who at that point in the film definitely is infected turns to look at it and says you gotta be fucking kidding and then everyone notices it and they kill it so he deliberately points out the thing head to everyone Uh, else even though he is a thing so that's that's well mccready doesn't have that knowledge obviously but it's one of the sort of justifications for um, what he says later on Mm -hmm. of course also there's always the possibility that they're just doing what we often do when we play some of these hidden identity games <laughs> yes. that we're talking about, which is that you um, 
appear to be on the good side in order to build trust. Absolutely, yes. Um, I I thought that all the time I was saying that, and I didn't want to say it out loud in case I seemed too nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... uh, I am sometimes good at these hidden identity games, and one of the things that I try and do a lot of the time, and I don't know whether it's really um, in the proper spirit of these to be revealing some of my techniques, but <laughs> I'm, I'm remembering this. <laughs> but uh, something that I do think about doing when I'm on the evil team is to um, act like I'm on the good team whenever possible basically i i mean i think that's a good strategy moving suspicion away from yourself is always good in these games yeah that was the first jump scare of the film uh there's someone waiting in the darkness there holding a dog uh and they're ready to throw it at him (laughs) (laughs) that's how it works (laughs) there's a man throwing a husky (laughs) tendrils try to escape from the cage he kicks it shut the um the tendrils there are being operated like whips by Rob Bettine, out of standing just out of shot. Okay. Do you know how the sound was made of these? Because it's a very distinctive sound. Uh, the sort of hissing thing noise. Yeah, the kind of sound that's happening all the time. Those tendrils are waving around. Uh, I don't actually, off the top of my head. I'll I'll have to see if I can find that and get back to you next cast. All right. Is that what they say? I'm I'm sure that must be what they say. (laughs) Elsewhere, MacReady has gone to the kitchen to get a beer. He hears the commotion and sets off the fire alarm. Um, So this part, it actually has confused me a little bit um, in previous viewings because I have not really watched this with headphones on before now. Um, And the noise that he overhears is pretty quiet is pretty subtle um and i did not quite understand what he was reacting to and it seemed almost like an overreaction hmm do you know maybe you're right i mean um i guess my first instinct would be to go and look but there are some really weird no like as you say if you listen to it with headphones there are some really weird noises interspersed with that sort of like an ethereal screeching which um yeah yeah might freak me out a bit if I heard it. I mean, I guess if he's already on edge because of what he saw in the over in the Norwegian station, uh, and yeah. uh, just yeah. what he brought back for, uh, as well, then maybe he's already just suspecting that something very bad is going to happen. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I wasn't really putting it in the same context there as you were, but it's yeah. very important. Yeah. I mean, if if I'd just been there, like seen the devastation, um, brought back a grotesque body that wasn't quite human. Yeah, maybe I'd be slightly more freaked out than before. Yeah, I, sp- I suppose it does on reflection make, make sense. Uh, it just uh, out of context, it seems like, oh, that that's a very big reaction to just hearing a strange noise. If you um if you like that sort of thing, this is the only piece of the film which features full frontal nudity. But also, oh, damn it! <laughs> yeah, you you get to see uh, Richard Dysart's penis for just a little second there. <laughs> really? Yeah, he's he wanders out into the corridor not wearing any pants. <laughs> I did not notice that either time. Not sure if it's deliberate or not. <laughs> I must have been taking a note whenever that came up. <laughs> 
<sighs> the men gather in the entrance to the kennel, confused. Uh, McCready's leading the group here. He's uh, gone to get a shotgun, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a 12-gauge Ithaca 37 shotgun. I don't know what that means, but it looks cool. The dogs at this point are making quite a noise. Um, the sound editor, Colin Mwatt, um, achieved this by filling his house with all the neighborhood dogs, then furtively stalking around the house in a dark trench coat with the collar up, tapping on the windows and rattling the doors to frighten them. <laughs> okay. What? I'm you. I mean, I know you've done things along these lines for your sound recordings, but um, I um, yeah. So sometimes you get sounds from weird places. It's true. Um, in I guess what what better way what better way to record a whole bunch of frightened dogs than to get a bunch of dogs together and frighten them? It's not. It's not on the same order of weirdness, but it still just is a weird job recording sounds. Just I wanted to get like a big satisfying door closing sound and so i was going to visit a a a friend at their their studio and i just said do you have any good doors around there and and he was like well i I don't really know but when i when i got there we just spent uh like an hour going around and shutting all of the doors and (laughs) recording it and in the end what i used to make the door was just to kind of uh, i composited together all of the good door closing sound to make one kind of big very satisfying door closing sound (laughs) yeah um further proof that sound recordists are insane yeah it's just it's just a very strange thing to do it's it's actually quite enjoyable i want to do more of it because just thinking of ways to come up with the thing um yeah (laughs) i was i was going to apologize for dinging there because i knocked the bell by accident but then you did a thing so i banged it also just a surprising amount of noises i end up just making with my mouth because i can't think of a different way of doing it (laughs) and then just combining that with something else um foley stuff has always been very interesting to me (laughs) Uh, but that's a topic for another podcast i guess Bennings tells Childs that Mac wants the flamethrower. Now, I know what question you're going to ask. Do Antarctic bases have flamethrowers? Uh, I would have thought they did. And the answer is, unfortunately, no, they do not. Do they not? No, they do not. Because I feel like you might need to melt something quickly <laughs> with a flamethrower. Yeah, I thought so as well, but... Yeah. um. Uh, I guess not with a flamethrower. The producer, Stuart Cohen, in a fan Q&A mentions there's no particular logic behind them having one, just that they liked the visual metaphor of both fire and ice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And interestingly, it goes to show the cultural impact of the thing, uh, that in 2012, Sven Lidstrom from the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station mentions both A, that they watch the thing as a first evening of winter tradition, and B, that after seeing it, he went to check MapCon, the US Antarctic program's material and maintenance tracking software, to see if they had any flamethrowers, and they don't. <laughs> so I guess that's that's as canonically confirmed as you can get, right? Yeah. An I actual so. Antarctic station does not have flamethrowers. Well, the thing I was actually thinking about uh, was, yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> quite good at this game this time. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> 
I, I guess I don't know. I'm just really on form today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I was trying to uh, think of this time was Bennings could easily, as the thing, just not have got the message to Childs mm. uh, and made that whole situation go a lot worse. But was this just a calculation is my question, because that wasn't really an opportune moment for uh, uh, for the thing to strike, because there's like loads of people there. It's, there's no secrets, secrecy around it. And so uh, maybe the plan is, oh, we just kill this one. A couple of them have maybe escaped anyway when they uh, when when they ran through the door past clark and will make them think that they've dealt with it and then strike later yeah uh, two interesting points you bring up there um number one i don't think it sort of gets established it takes a little while for it to take you over mm. um and there probably isn't enough time for bennings if he is a thing to assimilate child at that point Mm. Uh, but also he i don't think he really can avoid getting the flamethrower because if he if uh, mccready tells him to go and tell charles to bring him the flamethrower and then he doesn't that's very suspicious right i suppose so yeah it would be it would certainly be very hard to explain let me put it another way if if that came up in a game of the board game i would immediately be shooting that person Yeah, I I don't know. I I'm in two minds about that, but yeah, I suppose you have a point. Yeah. And secondly, we we didn't mention it at the time, but yeah, when Clark gets hit by the dog, there are two dogs that get past him and escape down the corridor. Mm. Although we noticed it seems to be the same footage twice, uh, but it it is definitely supposed to be two dogs escaping. Yeah. I do feel like those dogs were definitely in there enough and kind of look unscathed enough that it makes me worry that they are the thing as well. Mm. Mm. There is a lengthy section of the script which didn't get filmed in the end where the remaining dogs leave the kennel on their own and try to make it across land to um, McMurdo Sound Station. Ah. Um, And they get hunted down on the ice by um, the team. Uh, but it just never got filmed. The men approach the kennel. Inside, they see a mutated bloody blob of a dog on the ground, which turns to them and howls. All right. Um, There's a lot going on in this bit, so I want to break it down a little bit for you. Please. Uh, So this whole sequence was shot in North Hollywood over a two-day period, and it's filmed towards the end of production. Um, I know we spoke last time about films jumping around in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this monster is one of the only effects in the film not created by Rob Bettine, um, because he'd been working seven days a week at the studio to get the shots done. He was effectively living there, sleeping on set, sort of living off Coke and snacks and things. And he was sent to the hospital for exhaustion. Oh, wow. Uh, so Stan Winston from Stan Winston Studios had offered to help earlier in the production. And he called him up and said, you know, can you help us with this one effect? Stan Winston Studios, famous for effects from the Terminator series, the first three Jurassic Park films, Aliens, Predator, and Predator 2. They're, um, they're a great practical special effects studio. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Stan Winston refused to be credited because, as he said, the, everything in the film was Bettine's vision. Uh, they are, he is credited as special thanks to Stan Winston. Okay. They didn't really have a lot of time to prepare for this, so it's not a very complicated design. Um, the 
thing on the ground is essentially a hand puppet. So um, I, I can't decide whether to ding that. Um, the thing on the ground. Yes, <laughs> I, I meant it in the concept in within a, as a thing. Does that does that clear clear it up for you? Hmm. I did. I did for realsies. Um, so he, he took a photo of himself with one arm raised and then drew a dog shape over it um, that fitted the silhouette of his head and arm. It's effectively just a big hand puppet. There are no mechanical devices. Uh, it's a raised floor with a man inside operating the jaws with one hand and the wiggly moving leg that they called the chicken wing <laughs> with another. Makes it, I don't know, some, somehow less scary now that I know it's basically just a big sock puppet. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's effectively Big Bird. Yeah. That's what Big Bird looks like if you cover him in carbopol. Yeah. Um, citation needed. Um, the person on the ground, the operator, Lance Anderson, uh, said that it was a horrible experience operating it hmm. uh, because he's underneath with both arms up working the puppet with um, slime constantly dripping down his back and neck. <laughs> um, he also had to wear a leather helmet to protect his head from the explosive squibs the effect department are setting off in the puppet to simulate bullet wounds. Sounds like a nightmare. Not a great job, all in all. <laughs> The monster also shoots out tendrils and then wraps another dog in tendrils. These are reverse shots, so they're filmed as usual and then played in reverse. So they, you know, the tendrils start in place and then they get pulled back in and then they just play it backwards. Ah, yes, I, I do know that. Um, all the effects end up slathered in some kind of slime or another. Uh, Peter Curran in the documentary The Thing Terror Takes Shape recalls that the thing that most surprised him about going to the special effects department was that you could buy five-gallon pails of KY jelly. <laughs> <laughs> the men start shooting, but Clark stops them when they accidentally hit the dogs. The monster grows two giant claws and tries to punch its way through the roof. So, um... By the way, is this still the same effects shot, or, or, or have we moved on now? Is this part of the bit that was done by the other effects? Um, I, I think we have moved on now. I think Stan Winston Studios just did the um, right. the handy dog puppet on the ground. Okay, because all I was going to say about this is that it, it's not it, it's not bad, but to me, it is the first effect that looks a bit weird to me (laughs) in this film it just doesn't really look like those claws are able to do what they're doing where where are they coming from (laughs) yeah and they sort of do uh, this kind of weedy looking punch on the ceiling and the thing breaks and it's just kind of there's just something a little bit odd about it we end this section of the film with it raising itself up onto into the air on those arms making a weird weedly little noise which i um I think it's adorable. I don't know. Maybe I'm just wrong in the head. I don't know. I'm definitely glad that that one, that that is mostly silhouette, that final shot there, because <laughs> I think that really helped sell that one because the bit before with the claws going up is, is, is maybe one that hasn't aged so well, but then after it, when it goes up, like that, I, I, I bought that. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the rising mass with the thrashing yeah. tentacles is pretty convincing. Yeah. Um, just a, a note here that came really from something that John Carpenter said is um, uh, something that John Carpenter said during the director's commentary is like, where has the thing been? Like, where where has it been to get those claws and those legs and those weird knobbly arms? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
horrible planets beyond our imagining. Yeah, I mean, I did. It, I guess I hadn't really made the connection before, but I suppose you have to think about it and assume that every form that it's taking is just something that it's assimilated before. Yeah, something is picked up yeah. along the way and yeah. on some horrible other world. Yeah. They, um, uh, I can't remember whether it was for the prequel or something else, but there was talks of showing scenes from the thing's home world, mm. like in one of the other films or the spin-off TV series that never got made. Hmm. Um, I can't even imagine how grotesque and ultimately expensive to film that would have been. Yeah. But I guess that brings us to the end of this particular segment of the film. Um, again, a lot of stuff happened. Eight minutes seems to be quite a good um, ratio for these. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, once again, we uh, I would say we've gone through a, maybe a couple of beats here because we've got the whole bit with the autopsy uh, and then the uh, attack with the dogs but then that sort of comes to a close with this segment. Interestingly, they don't dwell on the autopsy as much as I thought they did. I, they circle back around to it in a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, I, I thought there was more fuss made of it at this stage, but I guess just not. Mm. So you know what I must ask you now, Peter? Uh, yes, I know what you must ask me now. You're going to ask me what happens next, aren't what you? What happens next? And... I don't really remember exactly what happens next. I do know that at some point soon, Dr. Blair is going to be running a computer simulation, uh, trying to figure out if anyone has been infected. Oh, the computer uh, simulation. <laughs> yes. Uh, Cause that's just quite fun in a number of ways. Um, mm. But um, I don't think we're quite there yet. I know it's soon. It might even be in the next uh, eight-minute segment, but I don't think it's what's going to happen next. Um, and I, I, I'm not exactly sure what happens immediately after this, so I'm going to have to just take a stab at it. Yeah, you've got, um, you got to guess. We, we, need, we need something. So let me think about this. I think... Oh, man, I'm just going completely blank because... i just can't think what happens in this next bit of film i i don't think that there there's got to be more action at this point because they're not just going to ignore the fact that um a, a dog creature has just escaped and go back to their lives so I don't know if I should give you hints, but remember what uh, Mac just called for. Uh, oh, did they not get the flamethrower yet? No. Okay. The, well, the, maybe this lines up a bit better with what I actually remember of the film. then, Because the thing that confused me was that I didn't remember the creature escaping through the ceiling. Uh, mm. And... Uh, now that you've said that, and and it was it did actually end up being a hint, uh, I don't think that does happen. I think the flamethrower arrives just in time, and they just cook it with a flamethrower. All right, that's a good call. I I feel bad that I had to give you a hint though. Yeah, and no, and then no, I no more uh, hints in the future. 
And then I think after that, they're just going to do some talking about um, kind of realizing what's going on here, uh, that it must have been imitating the dog and that what they were seeing on the autopsy earlier must have been what um, uh, it, it trying to Im- imitate humans and then just starting to realize that it could be imitating any one of them. And they all um, realize that they are all Ralph Wiggum on the bus and they are yeah. all in danger. Yeah, I think people start to get suspicious with Clark because he spent time with the dogs, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then I think after that moment, we get a bit of Dr. Blair on his own just looking into, okay, what's the chance that someone else has been infected while they in the kind of intervening period all right that's quite a lot i think i think we can probably leave it there that might be more than eight minutes well i I think that might that that is more or less what what's going to happen over the next little while so but immediately i think the thing that is going to happen is that they're going to arrive with the flamethrower just in time and blast it with the flamethrower so that um uh, so that it doesn't get a chance to escape up through the ceiling right okay they burn it with the flamethrower. All right. The second question, uh, as written in the great tomes that we decided while beginning this podcast, who is infected at this point? Hang on. Hold that thought. I've just remembered something else that I'm pretty sure happens. Oh, <laughs> in oh a yes. Second. Uh, the flamethrower at first, when McCready gets it, just doesn't fire properly. And it takes a while to actually get going, and then he finally gets it just in time. That that is something that I think is going to happen. All right, I've written that down. <laughs> Who's infected? Uh, previously, you had it was still just Norris, right? Okay, so uh, I want I want only only hard infections. I, what? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to take clark now off my is infected list yeah he seems um i was gonna say um you mentioned that they're soon gonna start throwing a lot of suspicion at clark but ironically i think we've exonerated him at least at this point yeah i think clark is on my not is is off my maybe list i I guess i should say uh i don't i no longer think that clark is infected at this point right um then who else do we see? I don't think anything else has necessarily changed. I, I, I'm still not sure about Bennings. I could go either way on Bennings. All right. So where are we leaving it then? Norris is infected. Uh, everyone else is not infected um, except your maybe list of Bennings, Fuchs, Windows, and North. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I, I would, I'm upgrading. Uh, we, we don't really have another tier, but I would, uh, at this point, upgrade Bennings to a strong, maybe. <laughs> we we can have as many tiers as you want, like the UK's <laughs> yeah. coronavirus response. Just not fucking get into that mess. Um, I mean, here's the thing. like he He does not have the hair to be the silhouette of the person that we saw the dog go into. <laughs> <laughs> but we've already discussed that it isn't a character from the film. <laughs> I mean, I know that, but it's got to be someone who could be the character <laughs> from the film, right? Surely. Yeah, that, it would it would be hilarious if you turn around and like there were obvious breasts or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this um, character is definitely not someone appearing in this film. <laughs> yes. Um, it turns around and it's a giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so yes, it it definitely did not appear to be Bennings. Uh, there could be two infections going on at this point. Gasp! For all we know. Um, I I'm not ready to commit to Bennings. Uh, the only thing that's making me want to commit to Bennings is that, I, as I said before, I do know that that whole thing happens quite early on. I don't think you're allowed to use illicit stolen future knowledge. I, that's all I've got. Like, I've <laughs> used it for who's not the thing. Like, I've used it for, for Gary. Oh, dear. Um, so, yeah, I think I've got to use illicit stolen future knowledge. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, strong maybe for Bennings, but I think Norris is definite. Excellent work. All right. And I guess with that, that brings us promptly to the end of this session of podcast. That's sure. That's how people end podcasts. I'm yes. I'm famous on the Internet, me. Um, <laughs> not for recording I, podcasts, obviously. Um, I hereby pronounce this podcast closed. And then we both ring the podcast closure bell. Three, two, one. <laughs> oh, what, what is wrong with us? Um, <laughs> tell them where you might be found, Peter. Grazing um, in the bushes at midnight like a gazelle. Yeah, well, you've got to do something. Um, <laughs> Can't go out, out during the day. That's where <laughs> yeah. the virus is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you can find me on various internet things as Kestrel Pie. Uh, that's Kestrel like the bird, uh, Pie like the irrational number. Or the word pie. But not the food pie. Yeah, no, not the food pie. That that would be crazy. Mm. Kestrel Pie would be very bad. Mm. Like, I think they're endangered. I think I'm off topic at this point. Yes. Um, I am Kieran J. Walsh, and my handle on many things is Kieran J. Walsh because I'm not particularly imaginative or original. Well, you hear no arguments from me. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sad now. (laughs) (laughs) It is now time to pronounce this podcast fully closed. Uh, I I don't feel like I can uh, close this off fully before I just walk that back a bit and say that I do, in fact, consider Kieran to be very imaginative and original. Oh, thank you. I'll uh, I'll write those down in my book of compliments people have said about me. Yes, so at least nice compliments to... that people have said in order to walk back something mean they said earlier. <laughs> yes, it's all right. I was going to write it down in uh, in the under duress <laughs> section of the book, mm, yeah. which is, admittedly is most of it. Well, anyway, as is tradition, I hereby announce this podcast closed. Go in peace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We've got to, got to come up with some way of ending this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, goodbye to you. Goodbye. Bye.